Welcome to the Outpouring Orlando Sermon Podcast. The Outpouring is a vibrant, Christ-centered church in sunny Orlando, Florida. Thanks so much for tuning in, and we hope you enjoy today's message by Pastor John Daniels. I've been asked to read the scripture this morning, so please, if you can, join me. If you have Bible at home, please turn to Isaiah chapter 1, verses 16 through verses 20. Wash yourselves, cleanse yourselves, remove your evil deeds from my sight. Stop doing evil. Learn to do what is good. Pursue justice. Correct the oppressor. Defend the rights of the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Come, let's settle this, says the Lord. Though your sins are scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they are crimson red, they will be like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you will eat the good things of the land. But if you refuse and you rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Amen. The church and justice. The church and justice. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for who you are today, God. Father, we call on the name of Jesus today. By that name, it is the only name by which men can be saved. And so, Father, we ask that you would come into our lives, God, come into our world, come into our culture, into our society. And Lord, I pray during these days and these times, God, I pray that you would show yourself strong. God, now is the time for the church to take its place, that we will be salt and light in the world. And so today, Father, as we gather around your text, we gather around your word, I pray that we will focus, that we will pay attention, God, that we would be open to what you say. And so, Father, engage us, all of our sensibilities, God, all of our mind, our heart, our soul. Engage our hearing, engage our understanding today, God. And Lord, I pray that you will provide clarity But God, make it so clear to us that in the end we see the beauty of the gospel, that we see Jesus in all his glory and all his splendor. And so, Father, I pray that you would speak this morning. God, I pray that you would speak strong. God, I pray that your word would cut deep. And then I pray that you would apply the balm of healing that can only be found in Christ Jesus. And so, Father, we love you today. We honor you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hear the words of Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. in a letter from a Birmingham jail. We will have to repent in this generation, not merely for the hateful words and actions of the bad people, but for the appalling silence of the good. Human progress never rolls in on the wheels of inevitability. It comes through the tireless efforts of men willing to be co-workers with God. And without this hard work, time itself becomes an ally of the forces of social stagnation. We must use time creatively in the knowledge that the time is always ripe to do right. Now is the time to make real the promise of democracy and transform our pending national elegy into a creative psalm of brotherhood. Now is the time to lift our national policy from the quicksand of racial injustice to the solid rock of human dignity. This is the vision of Dr. King in response to the times in which he lived, where he fought and eventually died 
fighting for the rights of the oppressed. For Dr. King, part of his disappointment wasn't just society in general, but also the response of the church. During his time, specifically his white brothers in Christ, some whom remained silent, did not live out the full implications of the gospel message. For Dr. King, his perspective was rooted in a biblical theology that said God has called us to love him and neighbor. God said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the greatest and most important command. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets depend on these two commands. So so for Dr. King, the, the Christian response to the wickedness and evil of racism in his day wasn't just a matter of race. It was also a matter of worship. Here in this text we read today, we see the vision of the prophet Isaiah that God had called his own people to trial in his courtroom where God is the prosecutor and Judah, his people, is the defendant. And he has called all of his creation to be witnesses to the charges that he's bringing against them for their refusal to worship him the right way. He had addressed them as a sinful nature, nation that was weighed down with iniquity, a people that had absolutely abandoned the Lord, that they had turned their backs on the same God that created them and gave them life. Outwardly, it appeared that the nation was prosperous. It looked like everything was going well. It looked like they were a prosperous nation that was doing well in all facets and even religious to a point that they were succeeding in their religiosity. But but that's not what God saw. He said that they were theoretically bruised and beat down by their way of life. That, That he stated that their whole head was hurt and their heart was sick. He he went as far as to say that they were like Sodom and Gomorrah, except for a remnant of a few. Matter of fact, he said they were not just like Sodom and Gomorrah, he said that they were Sodom and Gomorrah. They they had become so wicked that God refused to even listen to their prayers. He refused to hear anything that they had to say. Well, I guess you're asking in this particular text, what did they do that was so bad? Was it immorality as far as sexuality? Was, Was it immorality as far as their relationships with one another? What was most insulting to God was that although he was their creation, that they had an intimate knowledge of God. He he saved them. He established a relationship with them. He spoke to them directly through his servants and laid out for them the stipulations on how they were to be in relationship with him. But by his grace, he created a people for his own pleasure and gave them his commitment of covenant faithfulness to them. He laid out for them how they both would experience bliss and satisfaction in their relationship. That they had experienced God's power. They experienced his goodness in their lives. He wasn't just some God. He was also their father. He referred to them as his children. He referred to them as some that were close to him as a father has a relationship with his dear children. The insult to God was that they refused to worship him how he laid it out for them. You you see, they, they were to worship him not just by coming to the temple, not just by coming to church, not just by singing some songs. It was not just to come to bring a tithe and an offering or a sacrifice and and to offer up some elaborate prayers with long words. That that was fine. That was good. That was well. But here's what they, they failed in. They refused to take care of the poor. 
They, they put excessive interest rates on those who are already economically disadvantaged. The poor was gradually being disenfranchised. For the working class, they experienced a lot of loss, loss of their land with the, a means of their survival and a real threat was there to their livelihood and to their citizenships in, in, in the land. The, the insult was that the leaders... They brought out all of the religious rituals. They brought out the calves and all of the animals to make sacrifices, but they left their hearts at home. It is a shame to come into the house of God and bring your body, but leave your heart at home. It is a shame. And so God calls them on the carpet, not because they weren't doing the rituals, not because they weren't lifting their hands, not because they weren't praying, but their heart was far from God. And so this chapter in a very succinct manner, states matter-of-factly and bluntly God's honest assessment of Judah's situation. This is from God's vantage point. God had had enough. God was sick and tired of being sick and tired of his people. He, he is holding them before, he's holding before them their ways like a mirror, like you hold a mirror to your face so that they can see their sins more realistically. He wants them to become self-aware of their plight and how far they've fallen. Through the prophet Isaiah, God is calling his people to return back to him. In order for them to be reconciled, the nation's future hinged on its response to the Lord's appeal for social justice. Yes, God cares about social justice. This is about two precise things, worship and repentance, worship and repentance. And so what we see today is an invitation for them to be right with God because worship is unacceptable unless it flows from a repentant heart. And so he lays out for them eight commands that will put them back and put them in right standing with God. And here's what God says to the prophet Isaiah in verse 16. He tells them, wash yourselves, cleanse yourselves, remove your evil deeds from my sight. Stop doing evil. And what he's calling them to is repentance. He's calling them to have a change of attitude, a change of heart, a change of disposition. It should have been apparent to them that the call to wash themselves and to be clean could not be done in any ritualistic and cultic manner that they had done in the past. God himself was the only one that could cleanse them and make them right. Forgiveness for their sins had to come from a heart that was turned towards God. In the same way you and I, we obviously cannot wash ourselves and change ourselves apart from the grace of God brought about by the death and resurrection of his son Jesus. We can't fix ourselves. We can't cleanse ourselves from sin. That is a work of God in the Holy Spirit. God does not just forgive our sins though. He he changes our entire nature. He makes us new. He changes our dispositions as well as make us align with his. And so to repent and remove evil deeds from his sight is not just to repent after the deeds have passed away, not just after you stop doing what you are doing, but repentance goes back and cleans up the residual evil that the damage has done to the people that were affected by it. True repentance goes back and makes things right. That's not just individual, but that's also so communal. So people don't just need to repent. Nations need to repent. Per different types of people groups need to repent of the evil and the atrocities that they've uh, uh, put on other people. And so more times than not, communal sins are far graver than individual sins because the implications are far worse. 
And so he tells them to wash themselves, cleanse themselves. And so I want to admonish all Christians to, to cleanse ourselves and wash ourselves by repenting and turning away from sin and turning towards God. This nation needs to wash and cleanse itself, not from chasing after the idols that we've been chasing after for years, but we need to return back to God. We cannot expect for there to be peace in the land when we don't worship the Prince of Peace. And so he tells them to wash yourselves, cleanse yourselves, remove your evil deeds from my sight. God is saying, get it out of my face. Stop doing evil, but don't just stop doing evil. There's something else for you to do. I want you to pursue righteousness. And here's what he says in verse 17. Learn to do what is good. Learn to do what is good. What he means by that is to learn to value people the same way God does. To see people the same way the creator does. To know that all people are made in God's image regardless of race, sex, or their sexual orientation. Whether they have a criminal background or not. All people are made in God's image and they deserve to be treated with human dignity. Stop just caring for, for the rights of the unborn. We should care about the rights of the unborn. I'm the biggest pro-life person you ever meet in your life. But that doesn't just mean we care about life in the womb. We also care about life outside of the womb. So don't tell me that you don't care. You care about babies not being aborted. But when you see a man dying in the street, you turn a deaf ear and a blind eye to it. If you believe that all people are made in the image of God, that believes that means that you believe that in the womb and outside of the womb. And so we treat people well, regardless of the color of their skin, that, that beautifies the worship of our creator. God is not colorblind. I know some people like to say, well, I don't see color. Well, God does, and it's beauty in that. God has created a mosaic of beautiful people, and we should appreciate people for who God made them and treat them with dignity. You know, it was gut-wrenching and terrifying for the world to have to watch George Floyd go through a modern day lynching in the middle of the street. You know why it was tough to watch? Because it's not supposed to happen in the first place. We were not created to see somebody get murdered on live TV. We, we were not created to see images of somebody getting murdered and watch it on repeat, on replay, over and over again. We were not created to watch someone being murdered. And, and this is not the life that God originally intended for it to be. We're not supposed to be uh, sensitized to some sort of murder. We're not supposed to see somebody laying in the street pleading for their life. We're not supposed to see somebody get murdered. And so it, it is a cry of the people that are saying, hey, this is wrong. This is not right. You know why it's not right? This should be a reminder to you that God created people in his image and life is not to be taken. And so many people have been affected by it. And it seemed to spark up a dialogue like we've never seen before. People of all races and backgrounds seem to be concerned now after watching this man die at the hands of of the police and you should care and it should be worrisome and bothersome and it should make your stomach turn. But I have to be honest with you, in the minds of some black folk, although America cares seemingly, we, we appreciate the care, but we can't help but to look at America with a side eye 
Because we're wondering, where was this reaction for, for Trayvon Martin? Where was this reaction for Walter Scott? Where was the outcry for Sandra Bland? Where, where was the cry for Laquan McDonald? Where was the cry for Tamir Rice? Where was the cry for Philando Castile? Where was the cry for Maude Aubrey? Where was the cry for Breonna Taylor? We're asking these questions and we want to know why is it important now? We've been crying out for you and we appreciate that you're listening, but this is not some new phenomenon. I'm not worried about what you saw on camera. I'm worried about all the murders that you never saw on camera. And so... We are glad for your support because we need allies. But now we need your ear to hear and understand the plight of the oppressed. It was Dr. King that said an injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. So I want to say this to my brothers and sisters in the Lord that are of a different persuasion. Now that we have your attention and we appreciate it. Can we please stop with statements like, we just need to wait for the facts to come out. Do you know that if this was not recorded on camera and the facts would have came out as it would have been reported, that this would have just been another murder that would have gone unsolved, that would have gone on, that would have gone on, that would have not been prosecuted based on the testimony of those in law enforcement. And so can we stop with the let's just wait for the facts to come out. When you see a murder, it is a murder. There ain't no facts that need to be come out. And so, well, obviously, if the police did something to him, it had to be justified. In every institution, there is sin, and that includes in law enforcement. Just like there's sin in the church, there's sin in law enforcement, there's sin in the White House, there's sin at the corporation that you work for. So there is always going to be room for error. And so, well... Does he have a criminal past? And so you see news stations, whenever this would happen in the past, news stations would do their best to dig up the worst photo they could absolutely find. They would go back into a person's past in their teen years, years after they committed some sort of uh, minor infraction, and they would plop that up on the news screen to criminalize the person and take away their human dignity. And so we have to stop looking at, 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 at mugshots and judging people based off of that. If a life is taken, it should just be seen as that, a life that has been taken. And so stop saying stuff like, well, you should just stop playing the race card. I don't know one single black person that has a deck of cards in their house on the box that says race cards. You know what we do with our cards? We play spades, we play tonk, we play games with our, our cards, but we don't have a set of cards that says race cards. Stop saying stuff like that. If we're crying out, maybe you should give us the benefit of the doubt. How about giving us the benefit of that? How about fighting for us? And this is me calling out and pleading with my white brothers and sisters in the body of Christ who I love dearly. Here's what Dr. King said. There was a time when the church was very powerful. In the time when the early Christians rejoiced at being deemed worthy to suffer for what they believed. In those days, the church was not merely a thermometer that recorded the ideas and principles of popular opinion. It was a thermostat that transformed the mores of society. Whenever the early Christians entered a town, the people in power became disturbed and immediately sought to convict the Christians for being disturbers of the peace and outside agitators. But the Christians pressed on in the conviction that they were a colony of heaven called to obey, obey God rather than man. Small in number, they were big in commitment. They were too God intoxicated to be astronomically intimidated. But by their effort and example, they brought an end to such 
ancient evils as infanticide in gladiatorial contests. And what he's saying is the church had a responsibility and they stuck to that responsibility and they came in where there was injustice and they brought the gospel and the good news of Jesus Christ and they endured to see change take place. They stood up for those who were oppressed even if it cost them something. Let's look at the rest of verse 17. I love the cadence that he uses here. Would you look at verse 17? He says, pursue justice, correct the oppressor, defend the rights of the fatherless, plead the widow's case. I want to read that again. I love this. Pursue justice, correct the oppressor, defend the rights of the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. He doesn't just say, just go out, oh, just preach the gospel. He gives them things that they should be doing to pursue justice, pursue justice, correct the oppressor, defend the rights of the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. If you know me, fight for me like, like you know me, correct. Correct your oppressor when you're not in my presence. It's okay for you to post on social media and hashtag somebody to death, but can you stand up for me in private conversations when you may lose friendships? Can you speak up and plead our cause in those situations? Be willing to lose some of your privilege. If Jesus came down to get in it with us, to take on our sins on the cross, to live in our mess and our sinfulness, to come and suffer with us, then he is the model for what it is like for us as Christians, black and white to pursue justice. You know, you may lose some friends and family and church members and access, but that is your true worship and Jesus will crown you when he returns. This ain't just about race. This is about the cross. So, to our white brothers and sisters in the Lord, know the type of tension that we live under. Know the type of PTSD that we experience. Inquire what it is like to know how it feels as a black man to see the police behind you while you're driving and being tense. God forbid getting pulled over even for a simple violation. You start thinking about crimes that you know you never committed. You tense up. You get scared because you don't know what's about to happen. You got to get on the phone and call your girl and call your mom and call your kids. You got to turn on cameras. You got to live in this tense. You check in your pockets for drugs and you don't even do drugs. That is the tension that we live under. And it is real. That there's other tensions that we live under. Ask any black person you know if they have two different voices. Because we have a voice of family and friends, but then we have a voice that we have to put on for job interviews. Every black person knows this. You know the you that, that answers the phone when your people call, and then you know the you that answers the phone when it's your job. You know the voice that you use for the job interview. You answer the phone like, what's up, this is Sarah, and then when they call, hello, this is Sarah speaking, you know all black people have that voice, but that is a type of double consciousness that we have to live under to fit in, and we just want to be accepted as we are made in God's image. So how about doing your own research on the plight of black and brown people? Learn about systemic racism that has been persistent in this country for many years. Learn about redlining, how in the 1930s the government surveyors graded neighborhoods in 239 cities, color coding those cities in the form of blue being the best neighborhood, yellow for being desirable neighborhoods, uh, for neighborhoods that were definitely declining, and red for hazardous neighborhoods. And the red neighborhoods were made up of predominantly African American people. Therefore, lenders discounted those people in the air that lived in those areas and they saw them as a credit risk. And so anytime a person or a group of people were in a community that were not Northern European white folks. They were said to have devalued 
the value of the land. Loans in those neighborhoods were unavailable or very expensive, making it difficult for low-income minorities to buy homes and setting the stage for the country's persistent racial wealth gap. Even the Fair Housing Act of 1968 that banned racial discrimination in the housing effects of redlining are clear with the pattern of economic and racial residential segregation still evident in many U.S. cities. Do you know that on average, white households have nearly six and a half times the wealth of black household. Would you say, how would you say that's possible because everybody can work now, it's all equal now. Well, wealth that has been accumulated from trading and enslavement of Africans and from taking of black owned property was passed down to white children and grandchildren. Government policies as such as racial housing covenants, redlining, financial handouts for white war veterans, not black ones, and highway expansions provided additional wealth expansion for white families while providing net zero wealth opportunities for African American families. And so we have to look at all of this and know that it plays itself out. And although the, the racism of the past is gone, there is still deep pockets and remnants of it that pervades our culture. Now there is systemic and racism. And so what we're saying is it is a tragedy. It is unjust. And so that should cause all people to pray, to care for, to speak up for, to give support to, to support people that have been oppressed for years. And that's not enough. Here's what Jesus said in Matthew 23 and 23. He said, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You pay a tenth, a tenth of mint, dill, and cumin, yet you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. These things should have been done without neglecting the other. Just like Israel and just like Jesus in his day, Christians tend to maximize the physical acts of worship while minimizing the spiritual. And what God was saying to them was this, if you want to worship me, become active in compassion and justice for people that have been hurt, especially the marginalized. Fight for people that can't pay you back, people that might not say thank you. Set the rights wrongs, set right the wrongs, not that just you have yourself have not done, but set the rights that you have tolerated that have been done to other people. What he's calling for is compassion towards people and tenderness towards God. This is not just a call to stand up for justice, to justice for justice sake, but so that we model the character and the nature of God. He cared for all believers, that we were enemies of God at one point, and he came and brought peace and reconciliation. And so what does he do? He lays before them a decision that they have to make. And here's what he says in verses 18 through 20. Here's what God says, because there's always hope. There's always the chance for reconciliation. There's always the chance to get it together. And here's what he says in verses 18 through 20. Come, let's settle this, says the Lord. Though your sins are scarlet, they will be white as snow. Though they are crimson red, they will be like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you will eat the good things of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So after the weeks of trauma, I had nowhere to look. I had nowhere to turn to see a man die in broad daylight in the street in front of witnesses with people standing around watching it with other authority figures right there in the presence watching it. 
I had nowhere to look besides the suffering Savior to make sense of what I was watching, to see a man die on TV while in police custody. This is why I have to look to Jesus. He's the only God, the only hope. He's the only one that, that, over, that overstands. He doesn't just understand. He overstands what it's like to experience injustice. And if there's any person that can relate to every, to relate to the plight of every innocent brother that has ever suffered at the hands of the authorities, lest we forget the one that suffered innocently at the hands of a government agency that was arrested, although he never committed a crime, was brutally beat and murdered in front of a gang of eyewitnesses in broad daylight. John tells us that while he was on the cross, I feel you, George Floyd, he cried out for his mama while he's on the cross. Who does Jesus make provision for? He speaks directly and calls out to his mama. And so Jesus can relate to what brother George experienced and Jesus can relate to what any person that has ever had to face the plight of injustice has experienced. And Jesus died for our sins so we can turn we can repent we don't have to respond and meet violence with violence we can turn the other cheek we can pray for those who persecute us because you know what happened after Jesus died you know what happened not not that George Floyd had a knee to his neck but Jesus got nailed to a cross and you know what happened three days later that same Jesus was raised to life so even if you have been racist you can turn and we can return and repent even if you have hated people that have been racist towards you you can turn and repent because Jesus through his resurrection has made us all alive in Christ and if you are in Christ he has torn down the walls that divided us he has broken down the walls of hostility and he has created one new man called the church and so our hope is in Jesus and our worship is not just coming to church it is not just paying tithe you should do both of those things but worship extends into fighting for those who can't fight for themselves, to pursue justice, to learn to do what is right, to correct the oppression, to plead the cause of the widow, to defend the fatherless. Amen. We hope you were blessed by the message today and would love to hear about how God is using this ministry in your life. You can connect with us online at outpouringorlando.com to share your story, request prayer, give financial support, or learn more about our ministry. We'd love to see you at one of our Sunday services if you're ever in the Orlando area. Thanks again for joining us today. Have a wonderful week.